Good morning. Good morning. Um, good morning. Okay, so uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Kevin Schneider. Um, I grew up, born and raised here at Trinity Bible Church, and, um, and for the past eight years now, I've been a member, and growing up in, um, as a student, I was a part of youth ministry, and uh, as soon as I graduated high school, I just stayed in youth ministry as a youth leader. I've been leading worship for, for youth, and, and uh, this past year has been my first full year as the pastoral assistant to youth, um, and, and it's been great. And, uh, and my wife, Ashley, um, I can't, she's, she's real short, so it's hard to find her. Uh, my, and my wife, Ashley, uh, we, we're having our, our, um, our first baby, and, uh, and due in July, and we're super excited. Um, so, yeah, pray for that. Um, but before we get started, I just want to say thank you to the church. Thank, I want to thank God, and I, I just want to thank the elders for me being able to speak this morning. It's a great privilege. And, oh, there's the wife. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, where? I literally couldn't find you. But, um, but, yeah, I just want to thank God, the church, and the elders for me being able to speak this morning. It's a privilege. It's an honor. And, and I'm greatly humbled. So thank you. Um, like I said, this has been my first year as pastoral assistant to youth, and during this year, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5 through 7. Um, so getting ready for Youth Sunday, I decided to just you know, pick a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, and I picked this passage, Ask, Seek, Knock, um, because it's a climactic point in Jesus' sermon. And as I looked at this text, it reminded me of how, you know, there's just some passages in the Bible that are really popular that almost everybody knows, you know, believer and non-believer, and they, and they can use it in everyday expressions, you know, just in everyday life, um, whether someone who goes to church or doesn't. Um, for example, so you might, um, someone might say, hey, can you turn the light on over there? And then every time someone turns a light on, they'll say, let there be light, um, and it's just like, oh, it's from the Bible. I know it's from the Bible. And, you know, this idea that God made light. I'm just going to use it when I turn the light switch on. And I think this is the same, you know, we can hear this and see this in um, ask and you shall receive. A lot of people have heard that phrase in the Bible, but they might not completely understand what it means. And they'll use it in everyday life. Like, hey, um, can you hand me that water over there? And uh, they hand it to you. Ask and you shall receive. Um, and so... People might know this expression, it's from the Bible, but might not completely understand what it means. And so the way that anybody can hear this verse, ask and you shall receive, be used in everyday talk and in TV shows and movies, can assume this, this misunderstanding that the God of the Bible who claims, ask and you shall receive, gives to anybody at any time for anything. Um, this, and this can set an expectation when we pray to God. And when a prayer is not answered, we can wonder, is something wrong with God? Is something wrong with me? Uh, when really, there's nothing wrong with God, and there can be nothing wrong with the prayer that you just prayed for. And so I hope, um, I hope a good understanding of what Jesus means when he says, ask, seek, and knock, will give us better expectations on when we pray to God. Um, the reality is, is there's a much different tone to this text. This text is hopeful, it's assuring and it's challenging. And so I want us to, to stop for a moment and think, when you consider that God is infinitely strong, 
and he can do anything he pleases. He's infinitely righteous and only does what is right. He's infinitely good and therefore does everything he does is good. And he is infinitely wise, so he knows what is perfectly right and perfectly good. And he's infinitely loving so that all of his strength, all of his righteousness, all of his wisdom, and all of his goodness perfectly work to love his beloved forever. And so when you stop and consider that, and that this God invites you to ask him for things, and he promises that he will give you good things, is breathtaking, isn't it? But the, other, the flip side of the coin is that there is a, it's a tragedy that there is so little inclination to pray among Christians in the church to this God. Almost anything can take us away from it. We can pray one time for something, and if it doesn't get answered right away, we can drop praying for it altogether. And so my prayer is for God to use this text and stir up our hearts to pray to him with faith and fervency like never before. And it's such a good opportunity right now because this summer we're going to be having our, our little, you know, our summer prayer um, sermons, and, and it'll be just a great opportunity to pray for each other with faith and fervency like we never have before. So if you guys are uh, taking notes, my big idea is this. Pray to your good Father in heaven, trusting he will give good things. Pray to your good Father in heaven, trusting he will give good things. And since this is a, you know, a sermon on, on prayer, let's, let's just pray real quick. Um, uh, Heavenly Father, um, I pray that you reveal to us your word in such a way that we respond in deep, dependent prayer to you in all circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. And so in this text we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, ask, you shall receive, seek, and you will find, knock, and the door will be opened. So we have to understand what is going on when Jesus is saying this at this time. And so we know that in between the Old and New Testament, um, what's going on in between those Testaments, there's been 400 years of God silent in Israel. Israel is waiting for a word from God. And then we see in Matthew 3, John the Baptist, he comes on the scene, and he's preparing the way for the Lord Jesus to come. John is baptizing people with a baptism of repentance, and he's proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John also says that there is one coming after me who is mightier than I, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus comes and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus has John baptize him, and um, Jesus comes, he's baptized, he's uh, fulfilling all righteousness in active obedience, he's living a perfect life. And Jesus then goes in, in to the wilderness and he resists the temptations of the devil, and after that he comes back and he begins his ministry, calling his first disciples and, and Jesus himself, as he begins his ministry, he's, he proclaims, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's speaking of this kingdom, and as he's doing this, Jesus is uh, he's healing diseases, he's casting out demons, he's healing paralytics, and he's preaching this kingdom to great crowds. And these great crowds are beginning to follow Jesus. And so what Jesus does, he goes up on this mountain, 
and he begins to teach his disciples with, with the crowds behind them this kingdom of what it looks like to live as a member of this kingdom. And just like Moses is giving the law to Israel on the mountain, Jesus is a better, the better Moses, giving the law of the kingdom of heaven on the mountain. Moses proclaimed the word of God on the mountain, given, given to him by the Lord, but Jesus, he's proclaiming the word of God by his own authority as Lord. And in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing the disciples what it looks like to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven while living in a world not yet fully transformed by God. He is showing them what kingdom living looks like in a fallen world. He first, and and in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus first spells out the Beatitudes and what the character of the members of the kingdom are like. He then gives two metaphors of being salt of the earth and light of the world to illustrate how those who live out the Beatitudes as members of the kingdom will affect the world. Jesus explains how you must have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, and he gives relentless examples of what this righteousness is like. He then gives specific instructions on giving, on praying, fasting, materialism, being anxious, and wrongly judging others. And the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives four applicational warnings of the dangers of hearing Jesus' teachings but not responding to him. So here we are, we're at a climactic point of the sermon. Jesus just finished teaching his disciples what it looks like to live in his kingdom in a fallen world, and he's about to tell them the dangers of hearing him but not responding to him. And in the middle, he says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. So we have to ask a couple of questions. What does it mean to ask, seek, and knock? Um, and what are we asking, seeking, knocking for? So, so the second question I'll ask first. What are we to ask, seek, knock for? So a common prosperity gospel view in, in the prosperity gospel is a false gospel that's running rampant around the world right now. A common view of this is that if you ask God for something, enough times he will give it to you, no matter what. Name it and claim it. If you claim it, it's yours. But if you don't get it, then you don't have enough faith, or you got some sort of sin problem, and so God will not bless you. This becomes a sort of self-centered, works-based way of praying where if you're not good enough, God will not give you what you want. It becomes you bearing the load of good works and righteousness. So friends, this is not the gospel. James 4, verse 2 and 3 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Okay, so... So James, he, he's, he's addressing this reality, okay, we're not having because we're not asking of God. And then he says, you ask and do not receive. Okay, so we're asking, but now we're not receiving. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Friends, it would not be biblically right to ask God for anything and, any, and everything at any time, and he give it to you. Because if you can do that, then you would be God, Right? If you can somehow get God to just give you anything you want at any time, like a genie where he says, your wish is my command, then you would be God. Friends, God is not a celestial slot machine where if you pull the handles enough time, you're going to get what you want. He's not a cosmic butler. He's not a vending machine. He's not a genie or whatever you want to call it. He's God. 
And he's infinitely wise and sovereign and good, and he knows what is good for his children. Oh, dear. I'm not good, I'm not good at these things. This thing's driving me nuts. It's okay, though. I've got to have the experience. So. Um, but what does Jesus say about the text? If we, ha- if we understand the context of Jesus saying, ask, seek, knock, um, what does he mean? First, he says a chapter earlier, he says, lay up, do not lay your treasures on earth where, ros- where uh, moth and rust destroy and thieves steal, but lay up your, lay up your treasures in heaven where uh, moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not steal. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. And then he says a few verses later, he says, don't be anxious about earthly things, about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. He, he clothes the lilies, which are going to pass away tomorrow. He feeds the ravens, which are like these no big deal birds. How much more is he going to care for you? And he says this, but, oh boy, he says this, um, Seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. We ought to set our minds on the kingdom of God and righteousness. And then he says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then we see in um, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, what we ought to pray for. And there's six petitions, and the first three petitions, if we look at them, they are towards God's, for God's glory. They are Godward. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. Jesus is having us set our minds on the kingdom. He's, wanting, he's, he's setting our wills on the kingdom, on God's will. Not on our own earthly, fleshly, immediate right now will. But does this mean that, that God doesn't want us to pray for our physical needs, our things here and now per se? No. The very next petition in the first three that are Godward for God's glory, the very next petition is Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And I think Jesus is literally saying, like, for physical daily bread, physical needs, God cares for our physical needs. He cares that, um, he wants us to pray for our health. He wants us to pray for food on the table. He wants us to pray um, for our physical needs. He cares for us in these ways, but he wants us to pray for our daily bread not our daily dessert. Um, but there's a, he's, he's setting, he wants us to set our minds on the kingdom, but there's another way, there's another thing to look at on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has shown us what it looks like to live in, um, what it looks like to live kingdom living. And there are two ways to understand the Sermon on the Mount when you read it. One way is to read it like a moral checkbox. It's a list of, of humanly attainable moral precepts, right? It's like saying, if I do these things Jesus tells me to do, I'll be a Christian. If I keep Jesus' commandments, then I'll enter his kingdom. It is attempting to, in our own power, to white-knuckle righteousness. It is a view of the Sermon on the Mount that is based on our own works. The second way to read the Sermon on the Mount is to read it knowing that the things Jesus commands are held to an even greater standard than how the Old Testament was wrongly understood to be. The things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is jaw-dropping. 
He says, you must have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, if you lust after a woman with your eyes, then you are committing adultery in your heart. He says, if you have anger or hate against another in your heart, then you're committing murder. If you will not forgive others, God will not forgive you. If you condemningly judge others wrongly, uh, God will judge, judge you in the same way you do in the same measure you use. You see, the crowds listening to Jesus at this time, they're, they're probably asking the question, how are we going to live up to these standards? Who is adequate for these things? These virtues, see, are beyond human attainment. The second way to understand the Sermon on the Mount is knowing that we must first be poor in spirit, that we are spiritually bankrupt, bankrupt with no righteousness to offer God. We must understand that left to ourselves, we cannot keep Jesus' commands. We need help. We need God's grace. We need a Savior. And so Jesus shows us how to come to the Father with persistence and confidence. In a word, Jesus teaches us, what are we to pray for? In a word, Jesus teaches us to pray for our spiritual things, for our spiritual lives. If you struggle, if you struggle with lying, and you ask, seek, knock, God will make you a truth teller. If you are not kind and you come to God in passionate prayer, he will give you a kind heart. If you struggle with lust and you persistently come to God and ask him to give you a pure heart, he will give you a pure heart. These are the things that he promises us. And in doing this, we also see an approach of dependence, persistence, and confidence in the text. And so that's my first point if you're writing notes. Pray to your Father in heaven in dependence, with persistence, and with confidence. I get thirsty a lot. Um, I'm going to read verse 7 and 8 for us. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So we've asked the question, what are we to ask, seek, and knock for? And now let's answer the question, what does it mean to ask, seek, and knock We see that there is an ascending intensity of asking, seeking, and knocking. Ask implies a conscious need to humbly come to somebody who is superior to you that will give you what you're asking for. And seeking implies involving action with your asking. Your action should parallel with your asking. And knock implies a persistence, a continually knocking on the door until it is open. We see there is a fervency and a persistency to praying. And in Luke 11, Luke's account of Jesus saying, ask, seek, knock, Jesus gives us an illustration. He says, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus is giving this illustration. Okay, imagine you have some friends that are coming in late at midnight. You know, they just 
gone on uh, a long travels, they're tired, they're hungry, and you don't have any food for them, so you go next door to your neighbor friend, and you're like, friend, knocking on his door, he's sleeping, can I get some food? I need to feed my friends who just came in. And he's, and he's like, hey, it's midnight, go to bed. Like, stop bothering me, my kids are in bed, like, I, I'm not going to get up. But Jesus says because of his persistence, his impudence, he kept knocking on the door. And his friend finally got up for him, and he gave him what he needed. And so Jesus is is telling us to have a fervency and persistency in prayer. But here's the thing. The attitude of the friend is grumbling because he was getting bugged. He just wanted him to stop. But that's not the attitude of the father. The father loves to give good things to his children when they ask. So we see there's a fervency in prayer, but we also see there's a confidence in prayer. And Jesus gives us so much reason in Justice verse 7 and 8 of the absolute answer that he will answer us and he will give us good things. Six reasons right off the bat. One, knock um, and you're asking, you shall receive. Two, seek and you will find. Three, knock, the door will be opened. And four, five, six, for everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. But there's another way that I think Jesus could have said, okay, ask, 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 seek, 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 knock, knock, knock. Um, But I think a a reason that Jesus might be using ask, seek, and knock are different means of accessibility. So what I mean, imagine if a child is in a house and he needs something from his father and his father is right next to him, then he would... Turn and ask him, Father, would you help me? But what if, the, what if the father's in the house, but the child doesn't know where he is, then he would find him, he'd seek him. And he'd ask him, Father, would you help me? But if the father is behind a door, the child would go to the door and he would knock, and he would keep knocking until the father would say, come in, open the door. Father, could you help me? You might be here and your walk with God is a close walk. You're on fire for Jesus and you feel like God is right next to you and you can ask him for anything. You might feel like God is far away and you have to seek him. And some of you might feel like God is behind this big brass door and it can't be opened. But I think the point remains clear is that Jesus is saying, come to my father Come to him. It doesn't matter where you think you're at. Come to my father and he will answer you. You will find him. He will open the door. It doesn't matter how big of a brass door you have. He will open it. And then Jesus also says everyone. Everyone. There's no distinction. Everyone who genuinely seeks the things of God will find them. And so how often are you coming to God in prayer? fervently and confidently. See, it can be easy to fervently pray when you're in difficult times, yes. But do you have the same attitude when things seem okay? When you feel like everything is under control, do you almost forget to pray? Here's the thing. Lack of prayer can mean there might be a lack of dependence in God when you don't realize it. Do you truly see yourself completely dependent in God in all things? Also, are we confident? Do we worship a God who, genuine, who generously gives wisdom and good things without reproach to his children who ask? 
So do you ask him in faith or with doubting? James says the doubting one is a double-minded person, and they should suspect that they won't receive anything at all because they are like a wave in the sea, tossed by the wind, unstable in all their ways. So church, are you praying to your Father in heaven because you recognize your complete dependence in him? And because of your complete dependence in him, are you coming to him fervently and persistently at all times in all circumstances? And are you coming to him fervently and persistently based on your full confidence in him? You see, Jesus commands us to ask, seek, knock, because we are a dependent people. Every hour we are dependent. And because we are dependent, Jesus commands us to pray persistently. And the ground of our persistent prayer is confidence in who God is. And that leads us to our second point. If you're writing notes, my second point is pray to your Father in heaven because he is good. And so we see that there is a ground to pray persistently. The ground to pray persistently is confidence in God. And the ground of confidence in God is that he is our Father. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 11. So I'll I'll read for us real quick. Verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And so Jesus here is giving us an awesome illustration. Um, He's saying, all you parents out there, if you're a parent and your child is hungry and he asks you for bread, this is a good thing. We should feed our kids, right? Um, He asks for bread. Would you give your child a stone that looks like a loaf of bread and watch him bite into it and break his teeth? That'd be horrible. No parent, no, I don't think very many parents want to mockingly watch their child suffer. Or how about this? If your child like, wants to go get sushi and he wants salmon tempura, do you give him live snake tempura? No. I, I like sushi, so I thought that was funny. But <laughs> you don't want to give your child live snake tempura. Oh, the snake's alive. But... <laughs> So Jesus then says, you then who are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. Jesus is making a universally true claim that all people are evil. All people are inherently sinful in nature. We are all depraved. This is a universally true claim that Jesus is making. But here's the thing. He's saying, though you're sinful, you still know what is best for your kids. You still love them and you care for them. And so Jesus is making a how much more argument. He's saying, you who are in evil and sinful in nature, but you care for your kids and you want what is best for them? He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The fact that Jesus refers to God as Father, um, this is radical, this is revolutionary to his disciples. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day believed the fatherhood of God, but they saw it in terms of, of, of create, sovereign creation father, creator father, and not as much personal. Out of the, out of the 39 books in the Old Testament, um, it only refers to God as father only 14 times, and even then, it's rather impersonal. Of all the times, the term was always used to reference a nation and not an individual. 
But when Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he only calls God Father. That's all he calls him. He calls him Abba Father, which is an intimate, personal, reverent reference of a dearest father. And in just the four Gospels, he is recorded using Father more than 60 times. That's all Jesus called him. And so for the disciples to hear Jesus tell them to call God their Father, it was radical in their ears. And so here's the thing. This should be radical in our ears because this is grace and love poured out to us. So if you've tuned out right now, I want you to tune in right here. One of the greatest truths in the universe is that God has made, us, has made a way for us to call him Father. The reality is, is that we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our rebellion, we have been separated from fellowship with our Creator. And not only that, but in our sin and our selfishness, we have made ourselves enemies of God. And this idea of neutrality is a myth. You cannot walk this fine line of not worshiping God, but I'm not going to be an enemy of Him. No, we've all stiff-armed God. We said, no, God, I'm not going to worship you as my creator. Instead, I'm going to worship whoever or whatever I want. We have all sinned against God, and, and we've rebelled as enemies against a holy and righteous God deserving his just condemnation. But here's good news. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died a tormenting death that we deserve and on the cross, bearing all of our sin, bearing all of God's wrath, he gives us his righteousness. And he rose from the dead to prove that his atoning sacrifice was perfect. And now those who repent and put their faith in Christ are transformed from enemies of God to adopted children of God. And as Paul says in Romans, receive a spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We get to cry, Abba, Father now. He's made us a way to call him Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We have so much confidence to come to him as our heavenly Father. And so Jesus can command his disciples to ask, seek, knock to God. He can tell his disciples to call God their Father. And Jesus can preach the Sermon on the Mount because of the work he's going to do on the cross at that time. He was going to do on the cross because if Christ did not take the cross for us, this text would be useless. Without the work of Jesus, there would be no confidence to ask, seek, and knock. We cannot call God our Father. And this Sermon on the Mount, it would just be a list of morals that we would just continue to fail and fail. But Christ, he's taken the cross. And we have the Sermon on the Mount. And these these two things are beautiful together. And so then, let us, as Hebrews 4.16 says, then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. You see, this truth is refreshing for us. But there may be some of us here who, who might cringe to this idea of God being a father. Some of us might not like it, maybe because of bad experiences or abandonment you might have had of an earthly father. 
But um, so a couple months ago, um, the ministry staff got to go to T4G in Louisville, and it was a great time. But, um, it was encouraging, it was equipping, and um, and it was just it was a it was a pastors' conference, and it was just it was amazing. And and so the ministry staff, the interns, and, and some of the wives, we got to go, and and so we went there, did the conference, got equipped, encouraged. And, and, we were, and, and we were flying back, and our plane tickets, we all had, you know, different, we were all kind of separated. We didn't really sit together. That's just the way it worked. And, um, and so you know how it is on a plane. Every time you kind of sit by a stranger, you're like, well, I'm going to sit with this person the whole time. I might as well, you know, get to know them, talk to them. And so I made it a goal. No matter who I, no matter what stranger I sit with, I wanted to tell them about Jesus. I wanted to give them the gospel because the best place to tell people about Jesus is on a plane. They can't run away from you. And so, um, and so we literally sat in the back corner of the plane, and it was Mark Sherrod, me, and this, and this lady, and her, she's a middle-aged lady. And as soon as we sat down, Mark fell asleep. He was out. And I'm like, okay, I, I got nothing. <laughs> and... Um, and so I'm sitting by this lady, and, and, you know, we're getting to know each other. You know, oh, where are you flying to? Where you come from? What are you going here for? Um, and then, you know, and then we, you know, what, what do you do for a living? You know, do you have any kids? Blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so I, and then I told her I was a youth pastor. And any time a pastor tells somebody that they're a pastor, they kind of like, the other person kind of changes their demeanor. Like, oh, you're a pastor. Like, did I cuss? You know, um, <laughs> But so she changed her de- demeanor and attitude, and um, but it was for the good because she actually began to open up more to me, and she started giving me her life story, and it was it was a real sweet uh, time. And but here's the thing: part so part of her story growing up, she told me as a little girl that her mother became addicted to drugs, and she left her, and gone from her life, and, and her father was in and out of her life seasons at a time. And she didn't really have any stability of loving parents in her life. And so when I got to the point where, you know, we, we were getting through our conversation, I got to the point where, like, can I open the Bible to you? Can I, you know, tell you about my faith? I opened up this passage. I, opened, I showed her verse 11. You then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. And she loved her kids. Her kids were her life. You then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Love your kids. How much more will your Father in heaven... Give good things to those who asked. See, she had no experience of what a good father is like. But the reality is, is that as an image bearer of God, she was created to have a longing, to have a desire of a good father, and to be loved by him. And, and, when, and when we were talking about that, she began to tear up. And, and so, friend, if that's you this morning... God has made a way for you to call him father. Even, even you who have good earthly fathers, like our heavenly father is immensely better. If we were to take like a scale of like the best earthly father we can ever find, and if we like found the worst earthly father we can ever find, it would probably be like right here. But if then we take the best earthly father that we found and we took the heavenly father, it'd be like across the room, across the universe. That's how good our heavenly father is. He's immensely better. He cares for you. He knows what is best for you. And he gives you good things when you come to him. Um, How much are we forfeiting when we don't do that?
So if you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Christ, please talk to me. I want to talk to you after the service. If you genuinely ask, seek, and knock for God, he will open the door. The door can be opened because of the work of Christ. Everyone who seeks finds. It doesn't matter how much sin you have. His grace is greater than your sin. So parents, are you, are you bypassing pointing your kids to yourself and pointing them to Christ? Fathers, are you reflecting the Heavenly Father? Do you, do you realize that you love your kids as a father because the Heavenly Father loves you? That you were created in His image in that way. So are you reflecting the Heavenly Father? This is another thing we also have to ask. We have to ask the question, what if the child asks for a serpent? We've all, we all know that we don't give our child bad things just because. But what if the child asks for a bad thing? Do we still give it to him? No. You still give the child good things and not the serpent. Even when you're at the pet store and your kid says, Mom, can I hold the rattlesnake? He looks, he looks funny. I like the way the rattle sounds. You, you say, no, you can't hold the rattlesnake. You don't understand I'm doing this because I love you. And so even when we ask for serpents to God and we don't realize it, we don't know any better, he still gives good gifts to his children. And here's another thing. He still gives good things to his children when we think he is giving us serpents. And, and this, is, this is one of the trying things in our faith. But the, but the promise in the Bible is that if you are a child of God, he will not give you bad things that are ultimately hurtful. And, and I mean that when I, and I mean ultimately hurtful for a reason. And, and this, this tries our faith. I prayed for healing. I prayed for a job. I prayed for my marriage. This tries our faith to the limit. But the promise of the Bible is that God only gives what is good to his children for his children. Difficult as it has been. And this is the hope that the sovereign grace and the goodness of God enables us to do. This is what enables us is because he is good and he is sovereign. And he is gracious, and through that we can stand firm through the most difficult seasons in our lives. And so you may be in a circumstance where you feel like God is not listening, or he's not caring for you, or you think he's giving you serpents, but we can trust that he has infinite wisdom, and he is sovereign and good. And that he will not give you serpents that are ultimately hurtful. And he cares for you. There's a, there's a quote by Matt Chandler that I really like. Matt Chandler says this, Comfort is the God of our generation. And so suffering is seen as a problem to be solved, not a providence from God. This, this is like Romans 8 talk that we're getting to, right? Romans 8.18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
in Romans 8, 28, 28. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And here's, and here's one last thought um, that we can think about. Uh, believer. Uh, we might, sometimes you might feel like that when, when you come into God in prayer, um, we might not completely know what we ought to pray for. And even our prayers can be stained with sin at times, right? But here's good news. Here's even more confidence that we ought to pray to God is that the Spirit intercedes for us. In Romans 8, 26, 27, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints of the will of God. This is even more confidence to pray that when we don't completely know what we ought to pray for, or even our prayers might seem selfish or stained with sin, we, can, we know that, that the Spirit is interceding for the saints. So, conclusion, this is a joyful truth for us that our Father promises us good things. He promises to give us good spiritual things. So, do you come to him in all things? Do you trust him that he knows what is best for you as his child? My prayer is that he gives us an even greater inclination to pray to him as our Father. Let's pray.